What do we do when categories of race, at least in America, have been presented in largely binary ways, and yet people's experiences and identities don't always exist on opposite sides of a spectrum? How do we have conversations about non-binary racial identity, especially when data shows us that those identities are increasingly common? Those are powerful questions. And from a societal standpoint, their answers have changed and are continuing to change over time. I'm Malcolm Burnley, a 33-year-old biracial journalist. And I'm Darylise Lyons, a 39-year-old biracial journalist. In this three-episode series sponsored by grant funding from the National Association of Black Journalists, Malcolm and I will be amplifying the experiences of young folks with multiracial ancestry, whether or not they identify as multi-ethnic or biracial. We're going to be exploring how today's youth, specifically youth whose experiences of race exist along a spectrum, as opposed to on entirely separate sides, relate to their cultures and communities, where and how they cultivate a sense of belonging, and how they see themselves and their identities. People I've known growing up, they'll wait long enough to ask me, like, oh, are you adopted? Like, is that really your mom? You know, the the usual, the ignorant questions or what are you? Stuff like that. It's just like, in this day and age, people still don't get it. The voice you just heard is that of Akemi Blake Marquez, a 21-year-old living in Southern California. And Akemi is right. These questions, while ignorant, are also sadly not unusual. In fact, they're a staple of being biracial. I've been getting them my whole life too. Yeah, ideas about who we are and how we fit have been central to the narratives created about us. Narratives that are often told by people without biracial experience and ancestry. I'm sure most of those listening have heard about the often cited one-drop rule and how that has related to historic and contemporary categorizations of multiracial people with their minority race, a system that has its origins in slavery, segregation, and white supremacy. As Malcolm said, the positioning of whiteness versus other is something that dates back to slavery and segregation, but it existed even before that and is part of what emboldened people to attempt to dehumanize others on the basis of race, color, and religion. Darylise and I want to highlight that constructions of race seem to be shifting in some ways and for some people. In our interview, Akemi made it clear that she does not subscribe to the idea that she has to declare one singular racial identity while checking all her other identities at the door. I am Black, Puerto Rican, Indigenous, and white. Akemi is not alone in acknowledging where all her people come from. Throughout this three-episode limited season, many of those we spoke with felt similarly that it was important to embrace all their racial and ethnic ancestral history, and there were many who felt otherwise. Conceptions of identity amongst these 4 to 21-year-olds proved to be as diverse as their attitudes and interests. Malcolm and I will formally introduce all the voices you'll hear from throughout this season as they share more of their stories with us, and we share them with you. But for now, here are some of their perspectives on issues of identity. I identify as a biracial, black, and white. I am very proud of both sides because I don't want to say one or the other. I mean, obviously, if other people identify as that, that's totally cool and very rad. But for me, I am biracial and I'm proud, you know, that me and my siblings are both have a mom that's black and have a dad that's white. 
Most of our family is. We're part white, part black. We normally look white, but we're part black as well. We're mixed. For some, race barely factored into the identity conversation. So I'm a boy. I like playing soccer. I guess I'm funny. I guess I can do this. (laughs) I want to say I'm not always on my phone, Mm. but like not like not like as much as Cameron. Yeah. So your brother's on his phone a lot more than you're on your phone. Mm -hmm. For others, it feels central. Still others are in the midst of figuring out how important it is to them and even how they identify. It's really confusing, you know, because when someone asks me a question like my ethnicity or something, I never really know what to say. Hmm. Do you not know what to say like within yourself or is it more that you don't know what to say to other people? Kind of both. It's kind of hard to figure out where I am in between the two. And yeah. And I'm curious, you know, sometimes I feel like some questions for me, I want to figure out and other questions, I mean, they're not curious about, or it's not as important to figure it out, but is that a question that you want more answers around? Um, yeah, that, that would be nice to have a little more. To know a little bit more about that. What do you think would help you to get to know more? Well, probably learning a little bit more about about this stuff, about where I would land between my white American mom and my Dominican dad and Mm. learning a little bit about that and how other people have dealt with it. Yeah. When you say like where you would land... Is it more a question of race and ethnicity or culture or both? Uh, I would say both. That was Jackson Medrano, age 14. He said that trying to figure out more about his racial identity is important to him, but that he's also trying to figure out other important things, such as where to go to high school next year. For young people, school can be a place where they're confronted by other people's questions and conclusions about who they are and even who they're quote-unquote, supposed to be. I spoke with six-year-old Sam and their four-year-old sister, Zora, about their experiences with race. Do other students ever call you black or mixed, or does that ever come up? I guess sometimes they call me, like, black. I don't know. Yeah. And what do you identify as black, as mixed? I know because you come from several cultures. You're not sure. I go with mixed. Why do you go with mixed? I don't know. It's because one of my parents is black and one of them is white. And while that was Sam's perspective, that's not to say Sam's is the only perspective. Here's 17-year-old Jaden Starks. Jaden and his two siblings live in Barber County, West Virginia, not far from where their parents met in college, smack dab in the middle of the Rust Belt. I just saw myself as black because that one was a lot easier to explain than saying, hey, I'm white. Do you think other people see you that way too? Absolutely. I mean, it'd be kind of weird if they didn't, if they didn't see me as like a black person. Like, it'd be kind of weird if they didn't. 
And here's Jaden's brother, Isaiah, age 14 at the time of our interview, 15 now since his birthday fell a week after our conversation. It's definitely a lot easier to tell people that I'm black instead of that I'm white. There's a lot of white people around here and I don't look like any of them. Many factors shape how multiracial folks identify. Factors such as family dynamics, culture, experience, and geography, just to name a few. There are political considerations as well, such as the fear that identifying as mixed could result in a diminishing or narrowing of the political power of blackness, especially when it comes to things like redistricting of voting maps. As with Jaden and Isaiah, self-identification can also be impacted by the perceptions of a surrounding community. It's important to remember that there is no one experience of race, and that we whose backgrounds may incorporate multiple racial ancestral ties have our own individual experiences and perspectives that can't be conflated. Individual experience is essential. At the same time, we are far from alone. According to data from the U.S. Census Bureau, the multiracial population increased 276% between 2010 and 2020. Additionally, the number of Americans who identify as two or more races is projected to increase 200% by 2060. And yet, biracial stories are often silenced or subsumed by the categorization of race in binary terms. That's not to say that people who subscribe to the one-drop rule shouldn't have the freedom to do so, but simply to acknowledge that narratives of either-or aren't comprehensive enough. Until recently, mixed-race experiences have been relegated to the fringes, transformed into caricatures, or weaponized as political symbols. And part of what's been lost in the polarization of race or more nuanced understandings of not only mixed-race identity, but intersectionality. Here's Akemi again. One big thing is when you're biracial, you want to let people know that you are both, not just one or the other. And a lot of people, they be like, oh, just pick one, or oh, you're just this, you're just that. And it's like, you don't look enough like this, or you don't look like that. It's just like, that is the main thing that we have in common. Like, We're not judging and saying, oh, you're just this, you're just that. By amplifying the voices of multi-ethnic, multiracial people of a variety of ages and experiences and sharing their diversity, we hope to encourage listeners not to see multiraciality in any particular way, but rather to see people as they see themselves. That's one of the things I personally struggled with. As a black and white man, I've always felt like society perceived me in different ways in different contexts. And like those asking me the what are you question were often operating from their own agendas, which made it challenging for me to answer the question honestly. Do you feel like you can answer the question honestly now? Yes, but it took time to get there. Darylise, I know with you that hasn't been the case. Right. I've always felt embraced and included on the basis of my biraciality, but I think a lot of that has to do with gender and with geography and a host of other factors that, frankly, I never saw as privileges until I began to recognize that mine isn't every biracial person's narrative. Today, I see how challenging it can become when people's perceptions of themselves seem to be at odds with who they've been told they have to be, whether by their families, peers, or the ever amorphous force we refer to as society. It can be confusing when expectations around identity or around anything shift from context to context. Reese Matheson, currently age 12, soon to be 13 in January, 
spoke about how societal perceptions of her differed when she switched schools. She shared about how at her previous school, a white friend saw her as black and how at her current school, where she has more classmates of color, she's viewed differently. I know like Jasper, when he thinks of me, he thinks of me as like African-American. But like now when I go to this school, I more people see me as like mixed or biracial because there is this group of like, uh, they're there. It's kind of this one group separates themselves as and I think at my old school, even though this school was supposed to be more inclusive, I feel like that school was a little more like sometimes like it's more inclusive, but like it separates people more by trying to be so inclusive. When it comes to race, there can be a significant disparity between intent and impact and differences in perception don't just shape attitudes. They shape behavior. And that might come out in how people treat multiracial folks and in expectations placed upon our shoulders, including at times when those burdens feel almost unbearably heavy or like we're not equipped to deal with them yet or ever. Liam Marion, age 12, shared about the social tension he and his four soon-to-be-five siblings sometimes face when confronted with the same social pressure to pick a side. Well, sometimes it's kind of difficult because... People say you're one race instead of saying, like, you're both, and they won't take in the fact that you're more than one race. For the record, being more than one race isn't something other people can always see. And even when they can, just because a person is more than one race doesn't mean that's how they see themselves. There are multiracial people for whom identifying with their minority race has been a pivotal part of their experience or perhaps how they identify or how much they align themselves with a certain aspect of their identity, shifts depending on their surroundings. For example, 17-year-old Whitley Alfer, whose voice you heard earlier, identifies as biracial, black, and white. But because she's living in a predominantly white town, attending a largely white school, there are times when her connection to her blackness feels like it takes center stage. I feel like I belong in a lot of places but I think sometimes I will like reflect or I'll like realize like, but also, and then like, I'll look around me and I'm like, okay, well, like I am the only black person. I am the only biracial person here, you know? And then I realize like, oh, wow. I do realize, oh, wow. There's such like a limit of like where I am. It's only me sometimes. And I'm proud of that, but also a little bit like, hmm interesting, you know, kind of just something in the in the back pocket <laughs> to know. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting to me, because I feel like you shared that you and your siblings are super close. And I'm sure there's a million reasons mm-hmm. for that. I wonder if part of some of the reason for that is because you do have that in yeah. common. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even, you know, think about that. I'm sure I thought about that before, but right now it's totally coming to me. Yeah. I mean, we obviously share the fact that we pretty much are all the same skin color. I mean, one's this or that or whatever, but um, for the most part, we all literally look like triplets. So yeah, I mean, that's like an immediate connection. And then there's the other stuff that goes on top of it of personality or common beliefs or goals or whatever it is, but that's like the surface, you know, it's like that immediate, like, oh, we're going somewhere. Well, we're two, we, we look like, you know what I mean? And it's like, you have that person, oh, my sibling, you know, they immediately look like me. So I feel included. And I don't think it's like, oh, I'm in one place and I'm by myself. So I don't feel included. I don't think it's that. 
I just think it's like recognizing when you are in that situation, like, oh, that's, you know, interesting. Like I said before, I am the only person. So maybe it's branching out and being with different people, you know what I mean, that do look like you. Whitley shared that she is able to thrive in environments that include a variety of identities and experiences, at least in part because she has strong connections to her Black and white parents and family members and to her biracial siblings. She said that growing up in an environment of love that encouraged her dreams gave her the safety and the confidence to be herself in her fullest possible expression. And it's given her the strength to handle awkward and or microaggressive moments. A couple weeks ago, I was sitting in class. So this girl, she was white. I had my hair in a ponytail so you could see like, you know, my hair. It's big and poofy, whatever. And she just like, I was sitting ahead of her and she was sitting behind me. Um, I'm sorry, in front of her and she was sitting behind me. And she like reached for my hair and she began to touch it and began to just like toil the curls and just touch it. And I was so taken aback because I was like, I know. I don't know if I can cuss. I don't know dang well. I know that she is Yeah, you can cuss. Go ahead. I don't know. Yeah. I was like, I know damn well this girl is not touching my hair right now. I turned around and I was like, so taken aback. It's so funny. This is the most surprising part. Because I didn't even stop her until she took her hand away. Because I was so in shock that I was like, wow. Like, you have the audacity to put your hand on my hair when I literally, you know what I mean? I, I, I. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not like at a loss for words, but she, she did that. And I was like, I literally turned around and I looked at her and I was like, she's like, your hair is so pretty. And I was like, Oh, like, like, thank you. I was like, <laughs> and I just like uncomfortable laugh, you yeah. know, as one would turn back around. I didn't like how I felt. And I went into the other room and I told my friend and she was in complete shock. And she was like, what the hell? Like, what was she thinking? And I thought to myself, I had like a self-reflection moment. I was like, what am I going to do? Because I want to say something. So I went back in there before class ended. And I said, hey, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And she said, yeah, yeah. And she walked toward me. And then I sat her down. I said, hey, I said, hey, by the way, I just want to let you know, just so you know. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like horror in her face. And I was like, you probably don't want to touch a black girl's hair and just any black person in general. I said, you probably just don't want to do that. I said, I didn't pop off because that's not my personality. I didn't want to say something off. I didn't want to be like, what the fuck? Like, you know, I didn't want to go off on you because that's not my, that's not who I am. Mm. But I want to let you know, like, that is not cool. I did my hair. I don't want it to be touched. And like, you know, even if you ask me, like still, no, like I'm not going to ask you to touch your hair. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she like was just looking at me in like complete terror. Just she felt bad, but I know she was just like, oh, okay. Like completely like maybe a little bit in denial, maybe of being like, it wasn't that big of a deal. Mm. But I sat her down and said, cause someone else, I said, girl, listen, somebody else will pop off on you. And I said, I don't, I don't want you to feel completely thrown off. And I am happy that I was able to enlighten you, but just so you know, for the future. And she just was like, oh, like, okay, okay. And it's so funny. You want to know something really funny? Um, she didn't even apologize. It was this whole thing of like, wow. I mean, after all of that, I'm, I literally shared my heart with you and you just walked away. And I was like, wow, I had to just kind of let it go roll off my back. But yeah, so dealing with that, that's how I deal with it. 
Whitley's experience of having someone reach out and touch her hair without her consent is something that has happened to a lot of biracial folks of all ages. Occasionally, it happens willingly. It famously happened to former President Barack Obama, as listeners may remember from when, back in 2009, then five-year-old Jacob touched the head of then-President Obama in order to establish whether or not the president had hair like his. The Hair Like Mine photograph, taken by Pete Souza, memorialized the symbolic significance of hair for people of color of all gender identities. And Malcolm, as you may remember, it was your 2015 article, My Biracial Life, a Memoir, What 25 Years with Wild, Chaotic, Complex, Crazy, Ambiguous Hair Has Taught Me, that inspired our connection. It was after reading that article that I reached out to you and interviewed you for the very first episode of Season 1 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. That's right. Next year, Darylise and I will be releasing more episodes of the On Being Biracial podcast, And in those episodes, we'll delve into experiences of multiracial people, young, old, and in between, and explore the simultaneous exotification and invisibilization that so many of us experience. But for now, we wanted to point out the identity confusion and identity conflation that many biracial people experience. Siblings Liam, 12, Adriana, 10, Oliver, 8, and Finley, 6, shared their confusion at other people's confusion about their identities and how it's led to awkward interactions and, for Adriana, the outright misidentification of her racial and ethnic identities. Some people, like, just want to be mean to be mean. Other people are nice, but most of the time... They'll just say, like, if you look more on the, if you look more into the lighter side or if you look more to white, they'll just call you white. If you look more to, like, darker, they'll just call you black. Mm -hmm. So they really don't care if you're mixed or biracial. Do you care? Like, is it important to you? I'm not white. I'm mixed. Yeah. I come from both sides. And for the rest of you, is that something you talk about in your family a lot? Not really. There's this once when I was like a little tiny baby when I was at the grocery store and my mom was pushing me in like a stroller and these ladies said if I was, um, what was it? Like his baby? Like this? Um, what was the name? Mommy! Um, and they like called me something and my mom said, no, she isn't. Hopefully, the increased recognition of multiracial identities and experiences will bring about greater sensitivity as well as greater representation. In my interview with Sam and Zora, as we're talking, the two of them were playing with a cardboard printout of a series of dolls they collect, a collection that's rapidly growing. We have the ones that have curly hair like these. They have the same clothes, and and they can turn into a boy or a girl. For someone without kids, it was a newsflash to me that major toy manufacturers are making not only gender-neutral dolls, but also a wide spectrum of skin colors. We both have that one, and I'm getting, and Zora's getting this one, Veronica too, and I'm getting this, this one. I got, I got this one, and this one. Yeah, but Zora just wanted the one I had, so. Seeing Sam and Zora play with their dolls made me think about the famous black-white doll experiment that occurred in the 1940s, when a team of sociologists presented children 
ages 3 to 7, with a series of dolls with different skin colors. The scientists then asked the kids a series of questions surrounding the likability and desirability of the dolls, such as, which doll would you like to play with? Which doll is bad? And which doll has a nicer color? What the research showed was that the kids, regardless of their race, overwhelmingly attributed positive characteristics to the white doll, which demonstrated how deeply feelings of inferiority and dissociation can manifest in children of color due to various forms of systemic racism. Sitting in that West Philly living room with six-year-old Sam and four-year-old Zora, I felt a sense of hope that perhaps this new up-and-coming generation is being equipped with better language and more tools to express their mixed identities, dolls included, than I was when I was growing up. I got this one and this one. We each got one black and one white. And why did you want that? Because I couldn't decide what color skin. Yes, better equipped than in the 1940s or 1990s, absolutely. But I can't help but notice that these days, options are often still monoracial and not multiracial. Black, indigenous, Latinx, Asian, white dolls are all important for children to see themselves and their identities reflected. And I will say that there is a biracial Barbie, but I'd also say that there aren't nearly as many options for multiracial children and children of color in general. I thought it was powerful to hear Sam speak about not making a choice or deciding on one option or another. And I also think that that decision is something many multiracial people are faced with, if not with dolls, then with their senses of themselves. Absolutely. Part of the conundrum so many of those you and I spoke with have faced, Malcolm, is that when confronted with this choice, there is for many people a disconnect between how others perceive them and treat them and how they see themselves and how they seek to express their culture and find a sense of community. In our next episodes, we'll be speaking more about culture and belonging, addressing experiences of racial inclusion and ostracization, and sharing how important it is to find places where we fit. Here's Jaden again. I guess the big thing above anything else is to find my people. And I mean like people who like, I also see similar ideas and like, you know, like also wanting to make games. Again, doesn't matter race, gender, sexuality, none of that. Like, it's just as long as they're people like I can actually be friends and get along with. Do you have that now? I mean, a bit, but I guess I want more of that feeling, you know, like a feeling of I belong here. I loved that. Finding fellow gamers is a big piece of Jaden's search for belonging, even more than racial backgrounds. And yes, our people can be anyone with whom we resonate. But for young people, that often tends to be those in our families. Zoe seemed to encapsulate a feeling that many of our interviewees had, a feeling I myself have as well. I don't pick sides and I love, I love both my parents, but I like run to my mom sometimes to tell her what dad's doing. Yeah. But yeah, I don't pick sides at all. I really don't. One thing I noticed was that there seemed to be a pattern where many of the multiracial youth we spoke to had a tendency to feel more comfortable discussing race with the parent or parents who held an underrepresented racial identity. And that's been the case for me. I've had more open conversations with my dad about race. 
Speaking of dads, it was Liam, Adriana, and Oliver's dad, Julian, whose voice listeners likely heard interspersed with those of three of his soon-to-be six kids, encouraging them to speak openly about their experiences of race. And we found that those we spoke to had a wide range of exposure to conversations about race at home and elsewhere. Some had been talking about identity all their lives. Others said they'd never really thought much about it, but they'd all experienced moments that arose out of their multiracial identities, some moments painful, others comedic, and others heartwarming. One of the more heartwarming things for me to hear was when Whitley spoke about her father, but it also revealed a lot of societal misconceptions as well. He would be the one slicking back my hair in the morning. He would be Mm. the one braiding my hair, combing it out in the shower while I'm like, ah, like I'm a little baby. He'd be the one doing that, getting out the knots. I'd go to school the next day my friend who was white, she'd be like, oh my God, like, or their mom would come up to me. Oh my God, Whitley, like, you're so cute. Like, who did your hair? They'd be like, your mom, oh my God, your mom, I love her. Like, she did your hair. Like, actually, no, like my dad did it. And like their face would drop to the floor. People's surprise at the fact that Whitley's father was the one who did her hair probably stems from their expectations of stories like the one I tell about how my white mother set my biracial hair on fire with a hot comb. But the thing is, people's experiences of race are varied, multi-layered, and individualized. As we share more knowledge about multiracial experiences, the less we can assume. My hope is that people are starting to see the diversity within each and every identity category and to make space for individual experience. I hope that too. And I'll tell you, Darylees, speaking with younger folks about their experiences of identity, how others view them, and their hopes for society have all solidified for me that things have and have not changed. I agree, which is why I think it's so important to continue moving forward. That's part of why I asked those kind enough to speak with me about their goals, dreams, and aspirations. I want to be a police officer. Really? Uh, What makes you want to be a police officer? Well, I kind of want to change things and other people in the world. Right now, I am working on becoming a professional writer and singer. I write songs, poems, books, scripts for TV and television, like movies and stuff like that. I do want to be a singer. I also want to dabble in directing, and I'm also a painter. So that's what I'm doing right now. I want to be a soccer player. I don't know. I kind of just want to be like messy. You want to, oh, like the, you want to just be like him, the soccer player, Messi? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Do you have any other role models in your life? Anyone else you look up to? There's a YouTuber. His name is called Jonathan Blue. His channel is called Jonathan Blue World. And where he goes scuba diving, I kind of want to go scuba diving. I was thinking I could be a conversion teacher and then be a mom. And I asked them if they had any advice or insights for the younger selves they used to be. Don't try to find out your goals too early because I was like convinced like the whole time since I saw they got paid well, I was like, oh, I want to be a mechanical engineer because they make a lot of money. But I, I have no interest in actual like being a mechanical engineer. I'd rather be like um computer engineer or a hardware engineer probably just like if you do something wrong like it's fine just like own up to it i would just say like being more confident 
and being more self-assured and being more self-aware and knowing, okay, like who am I? And this is a big thing is like loving yourself first before anybody else. And I love when people say that. I don't like when people are like, oh, well, self-love, you know, like, no, self-love is huge. Like, I don't know what planet you're on, but if you can't love yourself before anybody else, I don't know how you would get through life. Because for me, I don't think anyone ever gets to that full, true, I love myself 1000 million percent, right? For me, like I'm getting there. At least I'm, at least I'm trying because so long ago, oh my gosh, when I was growing up, I guess if I could tell my younger self, I would just say like, hold on, stick it through. Like you're going to have trials and you're going to have tribulations, but knowing that like that will propel you forward. Because if I never went through that, then I would have never gained any wisdom from there. I don't need someone to ask for my forgiveness in order for me to forgive them and heal. Because when you do that, it's like you're subconsciously asking permission to heal. And I have to give myself that permission. And also just knowing that I am worthy of love and being treated right exactly as I am. I don't need to do anything to be myself. And also just, just trusting my intuition and knowing that I can't expect other people to change. You can want them to change all you want for the better and for them to be there for you. But you just have to accept things as they are, not look through rose-colored glasses and just be there for yourself. Give that love and trust into yourself. And what advice they'd offer other young people as well as future generations. Don't be afraid of who you are and who God made you. I mean, like, come on, like, you're so special and so unique and like, there's nothing wrong about you, right? Like you obviously are who you are because of something that happened. And like, whether that was good or bad, like you're, you're where you are today. You at least made it to listening to this podcast. So you're doing something right. I mean, come on, like your, your skin color is just, you know, a tiny bit, I guess. That's what I believe of who you are. You're so much more right internally of who you really are. And even though that's a big deal, right? And your skin color, that's a big deal. I still would say like, don't let that stop you from like chasing things that you don't think you can just because you have that skin color. And I think everything I'm saying, I think really applies to each individual, like no matter what you look like from the outside. Kids need to help parents. I know parents know more than kids, but kids can be powerful sometimes. They can be powerful in a funny way. They can be powerful in a mad way or a sad way or any type of emotion. But kids can be like really, really awesome. Kids are awesome. And when it comes to understanding issues of identity, their perspectives offer quite a lot. We just have to be willing to listen. Jackson Medrano shared about his dreams in the future and how he's already pursuing them. And what that pursuit is unlocking in terms of himself and his inner reservoir of stories. I think what I would like to do in the whole movie business is probably either the filming or the acting. Do you have any favorite characters you've played or roles that you've created for yourself? No, I don't think so. I feel like, I don't know, if I had to choose, there's this character that I didn't film it yet. But I did write about it, and he's this guy with 
telekinesis. He's in this school and he doesn't really know what to what to do or anything with his powers. And his parents is, have always told him that to just not use them. So he's basically ignored his powers his whole life. How yeah. much do you relate to that? <laughs> I feel like a lot of my characters that I've written about have come from like deep, deep inside me about how I feel or like what my mood is or yeah, like stuff like that. If we take the time to get to know the deep down places of those whose experiences and identities span spectrums, we can't help but learn a lot, not only about them, but about ourselves. Our hope is that through our work, we can bring forward stories that contribute to more expansive and embracing understandings of race. Stories that inspire us all to identify the depth and breadth of multiracial experiences. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to check out the next two episodes of this three-part series and to like, rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to all of the season's interviewees, Jaden, Isaiah, and Susanna Starks, Akemi Blake Marquez, Mason Riley and Reese Matheson, Zoe and Jackson Maynard, Jackson Medrano, Layla Jacobs, Liam, Adriana, Oliver, and Finley Marion, Whitley Alfer, Sam and Zora, and Tucker, whose parents preferred not to share their last names, and all the parents who consented to allowing their children to speak with us. And we invite you to contact us through our website, onbeingbiracial.com. We're launching more episodes in the future with voices of a variety of different multiracial experiences. So however you identify, if your story involves multiracial or biracial ancestry, please go to our website and get in touch. That's onbeingbiracial.com. A link is also included in the show notes. Yes, we'd love to hear from you. So thank you in advance. Thank you too to the National Association of Black Journalists whose support made this limited season possible. Be sure to check out our website, onbeingbiracial.com, to find out more about what you can expect from us moving forward and learn about some of the exciting work we're doing. Speaking of work, each episode of the On Being Biracial podcast is written, reported, and produced in collaboration between Darylise and myself, Malcolm Burnley, with audio editing and assistant production by Paul Kondo. The music you heard was 15th Street by Little Rock, licensing courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you again for listening. Check out our next episode. And Malcolm and I hope you'll embrace all of the identities you hold and the identities of those around you.